Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 106, Hacking 101, recorded August 4th, 2013, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. As uh, brought up last week, we talked a little bit about security, and, and we mentioned... I remember it might not actually have been on the recording that we were going to tackle this topic this week. So we're going to give uh, a brief, very brief introduction to hacking with uh, with the intent not to teach you how to hack, but teach you how to protect yourself from hacking. So that's what we're talking about tonight, Hacking 101. And with me, as always, to do that are my stalwart co-hosts, the inimitable, you like that word? The inimitable Command line Godfather, Mr. Chris Neves. Hi, Chris. Hello, everyone. And that's a, a very interesting way to word my intro. Yes. <laughs> and if you're in inimitable, does that mean Seth is imitable? No. He too is inimitable because no one would want to imitate him because he's just that weird. But we love him, Mr. Seth Anderson, the gooey kid. Hey, Seth. Hello, Mark, and welcome to the Element Opiite Faithful Around the World. Happy to have you guys back with us. It is Sunday once again, and I just want you to I want you to know that my heart is truly with this this audience and this podcast because the first opportunity of the year for me to see my beloved Cowboys began ten minutes ago, and yet here I am in the studio with you. It's uh, well, that's okay, Mark, but it's that's preseason. Okay. You, Come you on. Can- it doesn't really count. Yeah, but I haven't gotten to see. You really see need anything. to watch them. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, this is the first opportunity for the for for me to see my favorite team lose, and and I, you know, it's I'm missing that opportunity. Um, but it's only preseason. Losing doesn't count till the regular season, <laughs> and then they really lose when it counts. <laughs> That's the there you go. They're good at that. The important thing is that you know how to lose when it counts. Uh, so just, well, then I guess my team's got that in this. My team has that in spades. Then <laughs> what team would that be? The Raiders. Ah, yes, you are you are a, a well established loser. Uh, if you're yes. a Raiders fan, although they they really uh, showed signs of invigoration last year. I think the next couple they of years did. are going to be pivotal for them. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. I'm hoping, but I've been hoping for what. 20 years right. yeah every so, uh, every fan of a bad team says it's a rebuilding year and so that's yeah. it's a rebuilding I, year i quit saying that a long time ago <laughs> they, they're just not they're just a, a long tradition string yeah. of bad luck it's like when the cowboys <laughs> went through the quincy jones era we couldn't even say a building year with a straight face it, at that point it was just uh, we don't know what they're doing uh, guy can't throw a ball <laughs> but we're paying him whatever <laughs> so uh, i hear you so, Chris, you had some guys banging around on top of your house, and uh, no, they weren't. Uh, not on my house. Oh, okay. Not on my house. Uh, about two weeks ago, we had a really, really bad hailstorm hit my town. Um, bad enough that I'm sure all the roofing people are, are in just flush with money all of a sudden. Um, because I think I think just about every house in town needs a new roof now. That's how bad the hailstorm was. But uh, so this weekend was my mom's turn, and because my mom wants to be frugal with her insurance money, they uh, said that we can do it ourselves if we want. Yeah, that's such a great idea, especially when the forecast is heavy rain for three days. Yeah. That's awesome. yeah. And so we we stripped the roof, and we got the tar paper down, and then it heavy rained 
on the one side, and then we stripped the other half and tar papered it in heavy rain on the other side. And yeah, I'm I'm just glad that this whole thing's over, and they should have the eaves and everything up this weekend. Thank goodness. I had a new roof put on my house in Texas uh, several years ago now. But it was it was a summer day, you know. It was August or whatever. It never it doesn't rain in Texas from about uh, uh, May until November. So you're it's, you're safe to do any of those sort of things. Uh, you might get a little rain usually around the first of July, but otherwise nothing. So this was like late July, mid August. weren't expecting anything. We had the roof ripped off. I mean, I could stand in my living room and look up. I mean, it, well, actually, there was still the <laughs> ceiling there, but the roof was completely ripped off. Um, and just out of nowhere, and a, th- a thunderstorm just came pouring down, and it was the guys were just grabbing at every little thing they could to try to cover. It was a horrible experience all the way around. Just about the time we got everything buttoned up, it was over. Sun came out. It was just enough to ruin uh, all the work they had done that morning, and then it was over. Fine, fine. Yeah, that's that's pretty much how we were. We we just got enough to get us in trouble and. Well, we did find the spots that leaked, so I suppose that's a good sign. And, you know, speaking of but things yeah. to do in the summer, Teddy Roosevelt used to, to say that one of the best workouts in the world was chopping wood. He enjoyed going out and, and chopping wood. But Teddy Roosevelt didn't live in Texas, did he, Seth? No. That is a friend of mine. We had uh, storms come through a couple of weeks ago, pretty strong wind, and it knocked a tree over in his front yard. And so he's like, you know, he wanted to cut it up. And I was like, well, I will come over and help you. So I come up. It got so hot. Our chainsaws cut out and they wouldn't even start back. So that's how hot it was. Um, <laughs> golly, it, I think it was about 195 degrees. I might be off by a degree or two, but it was, uh, and you know, Chris, you talked about new roofing. This is actually how me and this guy became friends. I came over one day to help him work on his roof a few summers ago in quite possibly the second hottest day I've ever been in in my life. So, yeah, July in Texas is the time to work inside um, in air-conditioned room inside of an air-conditioned room. In the uh, fridge. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, you know, if you just have one AC going, it's uh, it's not ever going to shut off. Yeah, I was yeah. – my worst experience with that It was assembling a metal building on July 5th outside oh. no shade it was a hundred seven hundred eight degrees something like that 100 percent humidity and it was literally burning our hands every piece we touched up uh, picked up burned our hands it was just it was miserable and that's why i don't live in texas <laughs> <laughs> i live in montana where we have three seasons summer winter and road construction yes. in texas there's only two there's winter and road construction yeah. <laughs> All right. So moving right along, I'm going to jump straight into the listener feedback this week. Um, and our, our show on security made Gordon paranoid. And he wrote in to say uh, the following. He says, thought your piece on the guy who pinged the Internet. By the way, we don't have much listener feedback in terms of numbers this week. But my gosh, the, the word per capita content is through the roof. We only have, I think, four pieces of feedback, but each one of them is nine paragraphs. So buckle up. Yeah. If <laughs> go ahead, if Seth. we just read these, we're going to go over an hour. <laughs> so. 
So grab the frosty beverage of your choice and get ready. So here we go. Gordon says, I thought your piece okay. on the guy who pinged the internet was very interesting. While listening to the car, I thought I had my basic level of security in place. But I've been doing some, setup, some setups lately and uh, was a little nervous about the what I might have done just for now and forgot to get back to. So I checked my Belkin router. Dude, Belkin? Really? Um, uh, here, and, and here's what I found. I already know I had changed the admin password from default. As an aside, I do have to comment that the Belkin router doesn't actually have a default password. When it came out of the box from the factory, there's a little card that slips into the holder on the bottom with a pre-printed random factory password. So it appears that each router has a different default password. If you ever need to reset the factory uh, defaults, don't lose the card. Quick aside there. Um, it might not have been Belkin. I think it was actually, um, who did Cisco buy? What was the company that Cisco Linksys. Linksys printed the same password for like a million units. They just never changed it. Um, so maybe yep. you're not as safe as you thought. Uh, anyway, going on, it says SS, SSID is not default and WPA2 uh, encryption is set. My router uh, allows for WAN ping blocking and I have the checkbox set for black, block ICPM, ICMP ping. So I'm pretty sure I'm not including included in the map of the internet. Uh, nothing is in my DMZ, so everything is natted. I do have some ports forwarded through my firewall. I do also use a D dynamic DNS so I can get a few services from outside. I have uh, TCP port 22 open to SSH into a Linux host desktop. The username is not Gordon, and it doesn't have a password. <laughs> Um, by the way, change that to some other port, any port other than 22. You can have it mapped yep. to 22 on your box, but make it 51922 on the outside. Just a little hint there. Yeah. Um, uh, otherwise, you're going to get nailed. Yeah. yeah they're, they're, it has already been probed, I'm sure. Uh, oh, yeah. No, the username is not Gordon, and it does have a password. Uh, also have two other TCP ports open passing through a Plex server and a Subsonic server. Both numbers are above 1024. Checking the security log, I got concerned. My firewall log, log showed a series of TCP fin scan within the past minute, mostly outbound to WAN and a few inbound from WAN, all to the same IP inside my house and on, on different ports, uh, and all to port 80 on the WAN side. The IP was in my DHCP range, so I had to check the assignment and found it was my wife's iPad. This got me very concerned, especially since I don't know what a TCP fin scan is. Uh, but some Google searching found uh, Google searching later, and it seemed that this is not a very likely worm, just normal behavior for apps calling home or connecting to their servers. An hour later, and nothing new in the logs. So it was just a coincidence that I checked the log at the same time my wife woke up the iPad and started using it, causing a flurry of activity. Overall, I think I have the basic level of security. If someone was really determined to hack into my house, they probably could, but at least I'm making them work at it. Uh, so yeah, the only thing I have there is change that TCP port um, for your Linux box. The odds of them getting to it are, uh, you know, if you've got a good password and a, and a and a a decent username, you'll be fine. But still, better to to put that on another port than twenty two. Yeah, if, that just raises the would, bar up a little bit higher, right? Because that uh, if it's on twenty two, they go, oh, a Linux box lives here, and then they can start yep. probing specific Linux hacks, kernel hacks, things like that. Yep. If it's on some other port, say, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, if you have to leave it on 22 for some reason, make sure to install something like Deny Host or uh, I don't remember the other one that, but Deny Host is the one I'm used to, where it, it blocks um, IP addresses that fail uh, for uh, you know for so to stop those probes. 
So eventually you'll get, you know, enough blocks so people will just move away from you. And then you can also download the, uh, globe, the global deny, ho- deny host, uh, block list to block known, uh, malicious IPs. So that, that might be something else. If, if you have to leave it on port 22, definitely install deny host. Uh, even if you don't install deny host anyway, just in case. And uh, Professor Messer, a man who knows this stuff in the chat room, says, Fin scans on firewalls tend to send proper RSTs uh, back on closed ports. Unlike a SIN scan, this stays quiet. Someone's looking for an open port, uh, which, yep. which, according to what he found, was his uh, normal behavior on iPads, which sounds like yeah, something probably, that would do. Yeah, yeah I was going to say it was probably uh, looking for the UPnP to pop open a port for him for the iPad. So he probably has UPnP turned off as well, which is a good thing. By the way, while you're here and you're contributing to the show, Professor Messer, uh, if you if you are not familiar with ProfessorMesser.com, stop this podcast right now and go look it up. This dude has put more free content on the web than anybody else I know, and it's all amazing, high-quality content. Uh, he's a security expert. He's uh, He's... He's brilliant, and he's offering you stuff for free. ProfessorMesser.com, M-E-S-S-E-R. Go check it out. He says he's working on Linux videos right now. Well, obviously not right cool. now because he's listening to the show, but uh, in the general scheme of things. So, yeah, uh, James and I used to do a show together called The Art of Podcasting. i uh, love to do that again sometimes, hint, hint. Uh, but uh, he's <laughs> moved on to doing other stuff. <laughs> oh, he says he's he literally is doing pre-production on a grub as we type. So there you go. Uh, anyway, professormesser.com. Check it out. You won't be sad. Uh, moving right along, Jay has a specific question about KVM, but his specific question comes in the midst of a novella. Hello, gentlemen. Thanks for the great shows. You make my commute uh, far more educational and entertaining than it would be otherwise. I have a virtualization question, which could uh, be helpful to the rest of your listeners. I've been using virtualized machines at home and work for a few years now. I originally started with VMware, but honestly, when first playing with it, I got confused quickly between all the different options available uh, at the time. Because of that, I moved to VirtualBox and have been relatively satisfied with it. With the installation of guest editions for improved performance of of disk disk access, network speed, and video, this platform has served me fairly well over the years. There's just one small caveat in that some of the, my regular needs for virtualization platforms involve the need for USB sharing with virtual machines. Uh, this is permitted under VirtualBox's personal use and evaluation license, free of charge. However, I can foresee the need of having this ability for some work machines in the future. Unfortunately, Oracle has two licenses, uh, individual, personal use, or enterprise. There's nothing in the order of a small business license scope. Unfortunately, the enterprise license is $50 per named user license with a minimum order of 100 named users. Needless to say, this is outside of my budget for this project for the foreseeable future. A few shows back, one of your listeners wrote in regarding a home system they were building and had asked about KVM as a platform. Sounded like Chris was fairly familiar with this, having used it on several systems at home. I'd appreciate your opinion on the platform itself. I have material... uh, the material I have read online indicates it's a toss-up on performance with the back with the base packages of VirtualBox. However, the primary benefit I have read regarding KVM is you can create machines from the command line 
which is useful in a practical terms. This strikes me a bit uh, along similar lines of you need a keyboard that clicks <laughs> advertisements. Oh, you've been uh, been uh, you have all been bemusing in your most recent shows. While I'm fairly proficient with the command line, I'm less concerned with how quickly I can set up a machine uh, than with how reliable it would be to use once it is up and running. My primary—this is long. My primary needs for virtualized environment are to replace our aging home XP desktop in a virtualized Win7 environment. Uh, we have a few applications which still require Windows environment, none of which are graphics intensive. I have a small set of four to five existing VirtualBox appliance machines I would like to migrate over as well, which have little need for interactive access on a regular basis and are low resource intensive. In all, I expect the order of between six to eight virtual machines running at a given time, with the possibility of some machine development done here in the future, uh, which will later be exported to real hardware. I'm thinking of four to eight core yet to be determined CPU with a motherboard capable of up to 32 gigs of RAM. What I'd like to know is, finally, how usable is KVM in a production environment? Chris has recommended using a Red Hat flavor of Linux since they have better support for of Spice, which I have read is essential, uh, essentially the equivalent to VirtualBox's guest editions. I'm fine with Red Hat as that is the ecosystem I've been using, but the descriptions I've read from Spice, including their homepage, it appears this is very much a work in progress, uh, though not clear if it's an early work or fairly far along. Not looking to do any gaming on any of these virtualized platforms, but certainly video display. Maybe XBMC client as an appliance is possible. Is KVM up for this? Thanks for any advice you can provide. I'll gladly reward your efforts uh, here by committing to use elementopcom slash Amazon with ordering all of my new server parts uh, for this machine. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, Chris, I'll let you answer. Um, I will say the, the short answer is yes. Um, it would be able to do pretty much everything you've asked. Uh, and the, the, you don't have to use the command line to set up the virtual machines. It just makes things faster. The, uh, little appliance that, um, you can install works great. Uh, and then you can also use the appliance to connect. Like if you're at a work machine and you want to connect to the KVM on a server, you can do it from a graphical interface. You just have to point to it and s connect to it. Um, but as far as, um, the use of spice. I just like the Linux, the Red Hat deviance of, or deviance, <laughs> variants of Linux. <laughs> some of them <laughs> because, are deviants. Yeah, some of them are deviant. Um, but the, uh, the Red Hat flavor, um, has a better support of spice, like you, like you mentioned. And I would say, oh, yeah, it is a work in progress, but it's a constant work in progress, just like the virtual box add ins are. They're always being updated as they come along. Better ways of doing things. So is Spice. Uh, I've had I've had a, a couple of hiccups with Spice, but they've been minute and very small. And if you don't like using Spice, they do have a uh, a flip in or a, a tick box inside of the controller to switch it over to a VNC uh, graphics display instead of the Spice graphics. But uh, as far as everything else, I've had no issues with it. Um, I flip. USB hard drives in all of my virtual my KVM virtual machines all the time, uh, and I've even done some you know heavy graphic intensive things through it. You know, using uh, a Blu-ray rip and in, in a in heavy DVD, you know, 1080p type quality of video, and it handles it like a champ. So I I would say you won't have any problems with it with it at all once you learn 
the ins and outs. And the reason you can do that with KVM is it's not a virtualizing platform. It's a hypervisor. It's a different thing. It actually runs uh, largely on the hardware. It sets up a small software um, doorman that uh, controls access here and there, but you're running most of your code on the hardware, which is how you can get away with uh, playing a Blu-ray on a virtual machine because you're not actually on virtualized hardware for the most part. Yep. Uh, so yes, it's going to perform beautifully. My experience with, with KVM is it's uh, exponentially harder to set up than VirtualBox and requires a much more specific set of hardware and software because it takes over the machine. It's not a thing you add on to an existing machine. But once Mark, once the setup is done, it's really easy to use. I think he's talking about the KVM appliances built into the Fedora inst- virtualization servers um, that doesn't take over the, the machine. Um, okay. y- you're thinking probably of Proxbox or okay. something like that. Did I get them mixed Zen. up in my head? That happens. Yeah. There, there, there's All these two different, numbers there's and two letters run flavors. Okay. <laughs> well, there's two different flavors of KVM. One is... Like VM, which, you know, the VMware ESXi, where it takes over the whole box, and then you have to use a, a web interface to touch it. Right, that's what I was thinking of. Okay, and then they also have a desktop-type client where you virtualize your stuff locally like VirtualBox does, and you have a GUI client that connect, that connects to that service and deals with the service. Okay. Uh, but either way, you're still using the same kernel um, connectors, so... It's um, almost identically the same performance. So basically, the uh, the version this version you're talking about lets you use more of the host operating system instead of installing just a minimal host operator. You get a full Fedora right, install right. plus the other stuff. I wasn't right. aware that existed. Yep. Uh, and yeah, that's it. If if you go to install, if you already have Fedora installed and you install the virtualizing, uh, yeah. If you're in, I don't remember where it is inside of the. That's the software center thing. But if you are in YumX and you go to the virtualizing system, that's the stuff you install gotcha. by taking the virtualizing server. Now, uh, the way I handled this when I was a system administrator, being more interested in the free than in the open, was to use um, uh, a VMware server, not ESXi, but VMware server, which is like VirtualBox. It's an application that runs on top of yep. an OS. And doesn't have the USB restrictions. You can do whatever you want to with that. Again, it's not open, but it is free. So that's the way I handled that solution. Um, because at the time, KVM and uh, Proxmox were not as mature as they are now. Yeah, they're they're a lot more mature. So I would say if this is something you're playing with to try and figure out which way to go, try the Proxmox version, which is like VMware's EXXI. And then also try just the KVM virtualizing on a desktop to see which one fits your needs better. And uh, he has a PS. And it, Wait, go ahead, Seth. I was just going to say, in my continuing quest to get a free Microsoft Windows RT, <laughs> since you are virtualizing Windows, you might look at the free Hyper-V Server 2012, which is kind of just a bare-bone thing that you can load OSs on. It's not open source, but it is free. So... There you go, Microsoft. I want a Windows RT. Excellent. Now back to the rest of his email. He says, P.S. My really bad movie recommendation is Night of the Lepus, L-E-P-U-S. 
DeForest Kelly should never have left the Enterprise for this one. The, quote, special effects, unquote, of the giant rabbits parading through toy train scenery kept me laughing for hours. I, will, I do want to say I, I was a little disappointed in your response, guys. Uh, I, I gave you a pseudo command to go and start a forum, and one of you guys did. I appreciate that. Uh, and I replied and put some of my, my things out there, but I need to see bad movies. I need to know what these movies, Night of the Lepus, I've never heard of this. Do you, I, you are holding out on me. So thank you, Jay, <laughs> and go to the Element OP forums, which, by the way, were a little wonky earlier in the week uh, as a result of my previous database issues. You could create a new thread, but you couldn't reply to a thread. So maybe some of you tried to reply to the thread that was already created, maybe not. Uh, but that's fixed now. And I, I just wanted to throw in that some of my uh, choices there were Superman 3, so bad, you have to watch it. Um, anything with Jean-Claude Van Damme, but specifically Time Cop. No, Time no Cop come on. Bloodsport was a good movie. <laughs> yes. The fr- in, in the, the Jean-Claude Van Damme genre, it could be considered a good movie, if given a very narrow set of parameters. Uh, <laughs> I also uh, uh, listed the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I know I'm going to get feedback on that one. Some people say that's a great movie, but it's only great because it's bad. That's all I have to yep. say about that one. Oh, and speaking of bad movies, did you know that Sharknado, every time sci-fi has replayed it, the viewership has gone up. And this past Friday night, they did limited one-night engagements at various theaters <laughs> across the country. So Really? You could see sharks flying through the air uh, on the big screen. And had the show times been not like midnight showings, I would have went to see one just to be a part of the badness. But um, sleep was calling my name, and I was not able to make it to one of those showings. But anyway, I just wanted to make sure everybody knew that uh, Sharknado refuses to die. I want to see that in IMAX 3D. I, I, I need that oh, to happen. that would be crazy. I need that to happen. <laughs> that would be nuts. I might oh. watch it then. Oh, also, while we're talking about bad movies, I can't leave out the king of the 80s bad movies, Roadhouse. It's it's the ultimate bad movie from its time. What about time. Evil Dead? Yeah. Well, see, that one, yeah, that one actually had some moments. You know, it was it was campy, uh, but uh, for its time, no, it was bad. Never mind. I tried to bad. defend it. No, no. I just couldn't do it. Even even the, um, the, the second one where he's in the Evil Dead and he has to go get the Necromonicon. That's still bad, but it was so bad, it's fun and awesome to watch. Now, isn't Evil Dead the one where the a head being carried, impaled by a screwdriver, says, get the dadgum screwdriver out of my head? Isn't that Evil Dead? I, it might be Night of the Living Dead. There's one of those dead yeah, movies. I think that's Night. Where where the a guy's carrying a head on a screwdriver. Why he's carrying a head on a screwdriver, I don't know. And the head says the exact quote, get the dadgum screwdriver out of my head, with a southern accent. It's awesome. (laughs) All right. Moving right along to our listener feedback, Jackson needs a little guidance. He says, hey, guys, I have a question for you that isn't really Linux related. Then you're on the right show, Jackson. Hey, no. Yeah. (laughs) If it's not Linux related, we're everyday Linux, so we're nothing but Linux here except for bacon. So, sorry. Um, Anyway, uh, I have a question for you that isn't really Linux related, but it could be depending on your answer. I'll get straight to the point. I'm an IT student at the University of Missouri. 
have a year and a half until I graduate. Basically, I'm wondering what skills I should try to acquire over the next 18 months in order to get ready for the professional workforce. I really want to get a good job when I get out of school, and I feel like right now I don't really have an impressive resume. I feel confident coding in C and some web languages like HTML, CSS, PHP, and JavaScript. Is there a specific language I should learn next? I do enjoy coding, so I thought my next best step would be learning an additional language. I'm taking a class this fall in Java, so hopefully I pick that up. I don't know if uh, assembly language would would be good to know uh, or if it's not as important. My job, <coughs> excuse me, my job preference would be in web development, but it also seems like there's more people trying to get in the field every day. I've thought about joining up at Linux Academy, uh, but it will probably wait until next summer when I don't have classes. I've always been interested in how Linux achieves such great performance without sacrificing much in the way of looks. Anyway, I've heard from a few people that you will learn a lot on the job, so being super prepared isn't really necessary, isn't entirely necessary. I figured you guys would know from experience. I hope a semi-serious email didn't derail your any tangent you may have been on. Thank you for your help. Uh, well, you did. You pulled us off of bad movies, but that's okay. That's okay. Um, if you're specifically asking what language you should learn, I have two for you. Python um, and Objective-C. Yeah. Python is ruling the world of the web. Objective-C is what uh, apps, iPhone apps, iPad apps are written in. Uh, so if you're going to be a developer, particularly in the mobile space, you really need to pick up those two. What about Perl? Perl's a good one. Yeah, it's still out there, still used, but it's not. It doesn't look sexy on a resume. He wants something that's going to look no. wow on a resume. Perl doesn't. Yeah. Python. Uh, yeah, Ruby. Python would definitely be up there. Yeah, Ruby. Ruby. Yeah, Ruby would be a good yeah. one. Ruby would look really good on a resume. Um, not so much if you were going to go into web development, but you know, if you were going to be, you know, there's lots of apps on the IT side, backend scripting, uh, all of that kind of stuff. Ruby would go very well for that. So you might want to look into that. Um, the best way to beef up your resume, it actually looks like you're on your way to a good one, is, you know, you're in college, so you don't have a lot of experience. That means you can do some nonprofit uh, work for some nonprofits, you know, fix up their websites, maybe make just a couple of apps, do some free apps in Google Play or the whatever Apple's thing is, or both just to get your name out there and show some apps for your resume. Hey, look, I have, I've developed these apps. This was the first one I've done. And here's how my skill has improved throughout the time. So it looks like you're well on your way. Yeah. And this summer, maybe try to get uh, in on a Google summer of code project. Uh, there's oh, yeah, lots there of projects out there uh, and they're always looking for, for talented programmers. And uh, if you can put that on your resume, Google summer of code programmer, uh, that looks good on a resume. But uh, Nightstar in the chat room also agrees. Python, add Django to that, D-J-A-N-G-O. Um, oh, and uh, one more thing. Pick an open source project and contribute to it. So, you know, l find something that you're interested in. You know, if you like, you know, OpenOffice, um, LibreOffice, maybe just Linux itself or, or some strain of linux or some other open source project and get involved in it and that looks really good on a resume for a programmer slash developer contributed code to this project contributed code to that project you know so that's how you um, build up your resume right and and the people who've told you that you'll learn a lot on the job that that's true you will but an employer doesn't want to hire somebody they have to teach they want to hire somebody who can start coding today yeah. So uh, look around, uh, see what's being used. Like, like Google runs on Python. 
um, the all Apple, all their apps run on Objective C. Everything else runs on C. So you and Java, you've you've got a good basis there. You really do. Uh, but rather than just saying I have taken this class or I know this, code put together some projects, uh, some so people can see samples of your works. Like Seth is saying, create yeah. an online resume and say here and go here are to things I've done. Yeah, go to dice.com and just do a search for, you know, you could either search for just programming languages in general and see what there are, or maybe pick some of these, like, you know, whichever language you're thinking about learning. Hey, you know, if there's some language that looks really good to you, but there's only one job opening for it, you know, maybe you don't want to go for that way. So is there, are there a million openings for Ruby and only 25 for Python? Well, then choose Ruby. And again, I just, those are numbers I made up. I, right. I have no idea how many, but just do a job search for out there, you know, programming languages, list some specific ones and see which ones uh, that there are a lot of that interest you and you're well on your way. You're getting a good start. Yeah. All right. And moving on a word from Ryan who writes in to say, I have to say that I have listened to everyday Linux since around episode 30. Um, and for a long time, I was one of those that was always upset about a Linux podcast recorded with windows that never talks about Linux. I never griped or moaned or groaned online or even to you guys. I just mumbled under my breath and kept listening. I must admit that around show 90, I finally got it. Everyday Linux is a show about three guys. It's their podcast that's offered to the world. And oh, by the way, they like Linux. Now the name makes total sense to me. And for that, I do very sincerely apologize. Keep the shows coming. All right, so I'm going to pause there. He's got more to, to, to go. Uh, but I, I wrote back to uh, Ryan because his email touched me in a couple of ways. Uh, yeah. And I wanted to, to respond to that. First off, you know, I, 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 I'm sorry that I ticked him off for 60 episodes, <laughs> but he kept listening. And that, that speaks volumes to me. See, when I set out to do this whole podcasting thing, I had two objectives. Objective number one was to entertain you. Objective number two was to educate you. So um, the only reason he would stick around for 60 episodes, more than a year, is because he was entertained. So objective number one achieved. Uh, and yep. that's that I love to hear that. That that's awesome. And secondly, you know, you didn't know what the show was because we didn't know what the show was. We were still trying to figure it out. And I think Seth really turned on the light when he used the phrase life in the context of Linux. That's what it is. It's our lives in the context of Linux. That's what this show is about. Um, and you know, it took you 90 episode, uh, 90 shows to get it probably because we didn't say that until around episode 90 when we went, Oh yeah, that's what we do here every week. <laughs> so no apology necessary. Thanks for listening. That made my day. All right. Then he went on to say, you guys want to know what stupid things we've done. So here's mine. So Seth, uh, last night, uh, last week, uh, said, uh, tell on yourselves. We talked about some of the stupid, uh, security things we've done. Um, and, uh, that he said, tell on yourselves, it'll be interesting. So this is Ryan's response. You want to know, uh, what stupid things we've done? So here's mine taking so long to sign up for Linux Academy. Let me preface this with a quick backstory. I'm a 43 year old truck driver. That's been driving since 1992. It's time for me to get out of the truck. I've tried starting my own business, WordPress theme design and hosting, but quickly realized that while designing themes is quite easy, being a Linux admin is not just something you can have an eye for. I need help in a big way, and I can't stand driving anymore. Because I'm a cheapskate, uh, I signed up for the 14-day for $1 deal and was blown away by the amount of information available at the Linux Academy. 
I was just talking with Anthony in the forums, and he said that he was adding another 20 lessons in the next two days. There are currently up to 180, plus the downloadable notes, videos, one-on-one help, community boards. How can people say no? It's because they just don't know what they're missing. In fact, I would like to make a prediction that one day, very soon, the Linux Academy will become the premier place to learn Linux for anybody from noobs to sysadmins. I do have to be honest, the quizzes are medium level of hardness. On my intro to Linux quiz, I got a nasty 57%. But when I take it again, I will ace it. I promise. On my second quiz, Debbie and Package Management, I got a 78%, missing only two questions, which were worded kind of tricky. That's what a test is supposed to do. Uh, I've got to go now and take another quiz and start some lab assignments. I know you won't forget, but to remember to tell everybody about linuxacademy.com. Until next time, drink more coffee. P.S. Bacon. <laughs> so how could I possibly... We might need to get him on as a uh, guest <laughs> <Yes>. one time. <laughs> how could I possibly read that email without transitioning straight into our ad for linuxacademy.com? Because Ryan just laid it all out for you. Um, almost 200 videos right now and growing. Uh, Anthony is is dedicated to adding good content, not just cranking out content, but good quality content from expert people uh, about expert topics. And so the idea is to take you from a novice to a network administrator by the time you go through their courses. That's a big goal. And they work to achieve it every day. And as he said, the first trial, 14 days for a buck. The dollar just shows Anthony that you've at least got an online account and uh, are, are at least moderately serious. If you want to stick around past the 14 days, add another $18 for it. It's $19 a month, or if you buy two months and get one free, that's called $38 a quarter. And when you sign up, use the code EverydayLinux to let them know that we sent you. As uh, as Ryan mentioned, they've got uh, quizzes. They've got uh, downloadable uh, content. They've got uh, PDF study guides. Everything he just said, uh, plus a... Uh, a browser that tracks your progress. So that's how he knew that he uh, what he'd done. He could go back and look at his progress, see the the uh, test scores that he had, see what classes he's uh, courses he's taken, what lessons of each course he's taken, um, and so on and so on. Also, they've just recently added a Linux Academy for Teams. So the idea that Anthony had there, so that you can hire, um, uh, you can purchase this uh, a couple of licenses for different people, and you as their manager can watch uh, what they're doing, see their progress, and, and make sure they're, they're learning. I think he's missed the boat there. While that's a great thing, education is the market for this. So, again, 19 bucks a month for $190 a month. You can put 10 students on this. You can teach a class in Linux. You can use their, their, their uh, online tools, their Linux Academy for Teams, to track your students, to make sure uh, they're doing their work, for one thing, and secondly, to see where they need help. See who's doing well, see who needs to move on to more advanced stuff, see who needs to go back and repeat some stuff. I think he needs to call it uh, Linux Academy for Education instead of for Teams, but that's just me. Either way, it's Maybe a great tool. Maybe that's the next one. Maybe that's the, you're right. Maybe that's coming. So I think that's a great tool with all the stuff he's got there. It's a pittance, 20 bucks a month, less than 20 bucks, $19 a month. Or if you buy three, he'll actually throw in one free. I mean, okay. So it's $38 a quarter, four quarters in a year. Somebody do the math on that. $120, dollars Just under $156. $156. There you go. I, I yeah. didn't carry the one. Ish. It's cheap. Uh, so, it's, it's cheap. It's cheap. Do it. <laughs> you're not going to get a course at a lot of places for that and for this one you can get 180 and growing just do it 
Yeah. And the great thing about this is that, you know, there, it's not, it's not like I needed that one thing. So I got to hunt through three hours worth of video. They're broken down into short topics that even, you know, how it is, uh, reg- you, whatever, pick whatever profession you're in. You know, sometimes you have that brain fart and you don't remember how to do something. You can go here and you can reference that one particular thing, watch a little five minute refresher and go, Oh yeah, that's perfect. It's perfect for that. It's uh, it has ongoing value. It's not one of those one and done certification sites that, Oh, I got certified. I don't need that anymore. It's like, it's just how to use Linux practically. It's a Linux Academy. And all right, Seth, we beat your over under. We made it through the listener content section in less than 40 minutes. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's some speed reading. So I'm going to pick just a couple of the bevy of news stories we have here. Um, and I know this top one, the guys wanted to make sure we got that one in there. So I'm going to say that ransomware did us all a favor. Uh, this last week or a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, this was, uh, I came across this story and I just, you know, one, if we still were doing the periodic table, this would have been on there a long time ago. <laughs> but, um, for those of you who aren't familiar with ransomware, the one that's going around is the little FBI logo and it kind of takes over your computer uh-huh. and says, we found child porn on your p- computer. So we've locked it. However, you can just pay a fine to this PayPal account and get it undone. Well, some friends and some family members of mine have got this through uh, websites that have been hacked and it's kind of easy to get rid of if you know what it is. But anyway, this one guy, he came, he brought his computer to the local police department. And this is just outside of Washington, DC. He received a pop-up message that he thought was from the FBI telling him to click to pay an online fine or face an investigation. So he goes in and he inquires of the police officers if he if they had any warrants on file for child pornography. So he turns his computer over, they search it, they find porn, they execute search warrants and find more. And he ends up getting arrested for having child porn on his computer because he got a pop up telling him he had child porn on his computer for ransomware. So as much as I've bemoaned the ransomware people and thanked them for the extra money in my pocket, they did us all a favor by getting a guy involved in child pornography behind bars. So for today, you get a pass. Uh, I won't rant on you again until next week. Whoever you are, thank you for ransomware. So it just goes At to show that you one. that, that uh, there are stupid people all over the place and this guy was clearly a stupid people so uh, these i've seen these ransomware things before they're not particularly convincing um and secondly no federal government state no agency is going to have you pay a paypal account it's just not how they work or or the, the what is it money pack yes that's the one i'm seeing up around here is money pack not paypal it's money pack which is like the western union so. so so this guy is obviously not firing on all cylinders. So he goes into the to the the local authorities, laptop in hand, mind you, and says, Hey, do you have any warrants out for me on anything? Uh well what what might we have a warrant for you about? Well, child pornography? Um No, <laughs> should we? Uh well I got this thing. Here, look at my computer, will ya? <laughs> well, it turns out <laughs> yeah. we do have a warrant starting five <laughs> seconds ago. <laughs> yep. 
It's awesome. I, I wish more people would fall for that. Curse, like like Seth, as like Seth, I don't mind seeing it because uh, that just means a couple coins in my pocket. But uh, this one, I'll give you the whoever did the FBI ransomware. I'll give you a pass for the next oh hour or so, and then I'll keep cursing you. Yes, <laughs> a guy I went to high school with. Uh, I don't know if it's still his job, but uh, for a while he had the job of of uh not really the parole officer but he he was keeping up with sex offenders so guys who had been released from prison after having paid their debt to society and he uh his job was to make sure they were doing their thing not exactly a parole officer but similar to it and uh we were talking one day and I you know I asked him how, how can you manage how can you handle being around these guys these are essentially human scum uh many of them have you know quote unquote paid their debt but they're there's, I mean, your your job is just sort of put them all right back in jail when they screw up or to make sure they don't. And his response to me was, I don't do it for the criminals. I do it for their potential victims because we know that even after we release these guys, you know, they spend five years in prison or whatever. After we release them, we got to keep a tight rein on them because we can't trust them. That's why they were in prison. Uh, so, you know, this guy, I hope he's going to get some help. You know, we're making fun of him. Uh, because frankly, he deserves to be made fun of. But also, I hope he gets some help. I hope that uh, maybe the, uh, there's there's no evidence that there's a cure for this kind of behavior, uh, but at least maybe he can be uh, watched in such a way. Because often, viewing things online turns into doing things in person. So, uh, thank you, uh, scum of the earth, for getting one of your ranks off the streets. So, you are terrible people too, but you just happened to this time get another terrible person off the street for us all. That's one of those, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of things, right? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, they'll weaken each other and we can take out whichever one survived. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for those who are often uh, whining about graphics and, and uh, hardware in general in Linux, Intel has updated its graphics Linux driver installer. So uh, there's Which some new technology time. that will enable it to automatically detect your stuff and download it. That's the plan anyway. Yep. Yeah, they. Uh, it was what earlier this year they kind of came out with their Linux graphics driver installer and they they're actually starting to make it better. So, you know, on the benchmarking, it still kind of falls behind Windows a lot, but the gap is kind of closing. They're updating it and making it better. So, yay Intel for, you know, making a serious effort for supporting Linux desktop graphics. You know, and that's They're uh, doing a good job. We we quoted uh Linus Linus a while back when he said when Windows when Microsoft starts making software for Linux that's when I know I win. Uh well, you know, this is another sign that he's winning. Um yeah. the, the hardware manufacturers are finally having to take desktop Linux serious. All right, so server Linux hasn't really needed fancy graphics drivers because you don't, you know, most of the time a server is run headless. So the only right. reason you need a fancy 3D graphics driver is for desktop Linux. And finally, the hardware manufacturers are starting to have to pay attention. Now, they don't want to open source their driver. The idea being if they fig if you get a look at their driver, you can figure out how to reverse engineer their chip. So they're still not open sourcing it, but they're finally pitching in and writing drivers. So the true freedom people whine because it's not open source. But the guys like myself who are just interested in using a computer that has Linux on it, we're jumping up and down about the fact that a finally a solid binary that auto-updates is available. 
Well, and you know the 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 freedom only people. Yeah, they may still be cursing about this, but this is a step in the right direction. Even Huge. if they don't open source it today, maybe 10 years from now, they will. And then you won't have anything to complain about. So this is a good step. Just like when NVIDIA said they're going to start releasing graphics driver updates. Look, they started doing it. Now Intel's doing it. You know, ATI might actually get on the boat and start doing a decent job of their drivers. And, you know, it, it'll start being a better environment. And eventually, maybe we'll get some more um, open source and free hardware to go with the drivers that are open source and free. And because it is the tradition of Linux-based shows to be whiners, and we just con congratulated two people, let's get straight to the whining. Uh, Google, who has, uh, at least on paper, been a big fan of net neutrality, kind of says maybe not so much. Now that they're actually trying to run fiber and are in the game, maybe net neutrality is not such a big deal anymore. Yeah, they, uh, you know, they used to bash companies like, uh, Verizon and Comcast and all those ISPs about how, you know, net neutrality, if you're an ISP, you should be open and you shouldn't be able to discriminate against peer to peer or whatever. And so now there are, um, the terms of service that you don't ever agree to that you're supposed to read are, are that you agree to without reading with, you know, basically says um, you're using this for personal business. And because we might someday come up with a business plan, you are not allowed to use any type of server on your network. Um, and they, you know, and if you're using peer to peer, that's a server. If you have Plex server that you can stream. So basically they kind of said, now that we're an ISP as well, we don't care about net neutrality anymore, which is, you know, good for the ISPs, bad for us end users. Uh, so way to go, Google, way to, uh, way to become hypocrite on us yet. Once again, there's my little mini rant on them. And if you and take the, the the words as they are written and say no servers in a in a web 2.0 and beyond world everything is a server right now i am serving content up to Ustream as i um uh, broadcast this show i i earlier today and will again later serve some things up to dropbox right i am a server i am sending data yep. out to the world um there are clients out there polling my machines for data by definition my laptops my my uh computers are servers uh so well, the, the issue is they need to really refine this yeah it's kind of like you know we talked about how florida banned the entire internet with their crappily written law um you know they were trying to shut down internet gambling and because they wrote their law so poorly it basically outlawed the internet but of course, you know, I mean, that won't stand. It's kind of Google's terms of service. Um, you know, you're not allowed to run your own mail server under their terms of service or a remotely accessible media server. If you SSH into a home computer from work or if you run a Minecraft server, if you have a Nest thermometer or a nanny camera or, you know, you have a Raspberry Pi hosting a WordPress blog, all of these are against the google's terms of service the way they're written um so you know it's one of those things and of course you know google like th that's not what they're after what they don't want is somebody using a personal plan you know they don't want like microsoft to build a data center and host content to the world 
off of their personal right. plan. They would want them to have a business plan. So that's what they're after. It's just so poorly written that anything, you know, if you have a Dropbox folder on your computer synced to the web, you're serving up content and you're, you voided your contract with Google and gave them the right to suspend your account based on their terms of service. So it's just one of those, um, you know, like I say, now that Google is an ISP, they are friend of the ISPs and not friend of the, uh, users like they used to be. Yeah. And, and the idea is they don't want me to take my elementop.com with the hundreds of gigs of data that are downloaded every month and bring it into my house and set up a server. They want me to keep having to put that on a hosted uh, provider. I get that. They don't want me running a mail server that it gets hacked and starts sending billions of pieces of spam every day. I get that. But to simply say no servers, it's just bad. It, it's, it yeah, was short-sighted and, and not thinking. And, and it, it concerns me when a company can do that because somebody had to okay this it's not the fact that they had a bad press uh, release that didn't say what they meant it means that they wrote a policy and released it and then defended what they said so this has been defended a couple of times so the it's not that this was a mistake or the message got out wrong this was a short-sighted decision made somewhere high up the chain and that is what concerns me Google is yeah. too powerful to become short-sighted. All right. Uh, moving right along. Uh, recently in the, uh, the world of hackers, uh, the uh, attention has turned to cars because cars today are as much computers as they are uh, machines. Uh, and most recently, um, they took over a, a Prius. Yeah. Um, it was just, it was a cool story and I wanted to share it. Basically, People figured out how to hack a Prius and kind of take control over it. Now, the the thing about for this particular hack to work, they have to have physical access to your car. And, you know, and so you everybody say, oh, well, they have to have physical access. It'll never happen. Blah, blah, blah. Well, OK, this is the first generation hack, you know, used to. um you used to have to have physical access for a lot of things that you can now do remotely. And so, you know, it's not one of those, oh my gosh, I have a Prius. I can't drive it because somebody's going to take control of my car and have it, you know, spin out at a hundred miles an hour and wreck and flip over and kill me. Um, but it's just, um, you know, the hacks are physically tapping into the car's electrical system. Um, they showed how they could use their software to do an array of things such as they could blast the, call the car's horn or take control of the steering wheel. But again, it, they had to have physical access. So, you know, but uh, on the other side, they could put something physically on your car that they controlled wirelessly. So, again, I'm not trying to spread fear. And it's just, I just thought it was a cool thing that it could happen. And it shows the need for security to be a mindset in all, in every, um, every stage of product development, you know, not just like, oh, we have this great product. Now, how do we secure it? But it should have been secured from the beginning. Uh, and it doesn't seem to have been. Yeah. I can't remember the news story, but it was, uh, to, uh, Toyota. No. Maybe to I don't remember. It's a large company that owns several um, premium brands like uh, Porsche, for example. 
and somebody demonstrated at the Black Hat conference an ability to hack their system and do things like unlock the door, doors, start them up, get in, and drive them away uh, using some sort of an electronic uh, device. So, you know, the, the idea here is, you know, we're talking about hacking, right? Where this show is about security. The idea is you got to build security in from the ground up, not bolt it on afterwards. And yeah. I think that's, if I had to, to say uh, that hackers had a message, I would say that's what their message is. Some of them enjoy the mayhem, but the white hat hackers, the guys who show up at hacker conferences and release these things, their idea is to, to get the news out there and say, look, you know, this is the thing. Fix it. And most yeah. of them try to disclose responsibly before, you know, they give companies uh, months, sometimes even a year to fix it before they release. And then sometimes they have to release it before any action takes on it. Microsoft is, is well known for that. Somebody will let them yeah. know in January about something and they won't do anything about it. So the guy says, all right, fine, it's November. You've had 10 months to fix it. I'm going to release it. And then bang, they rush out to get a, po- a patch out. So yeah. hackers play an important role in our world today. And you know, like our our yeah. you know listener uh, feedback one earlier last today. Thing I'll let you pick between these bottom two guys. Go ahead, Chris. Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, okay, I was gonna say, I was gonna make a point to our listener feedback earlier to Jackson. Um, Jackson, these are the type of guy. This is the type of thing you might want to look into too when you're writing your code. Um, I know you're fresh out of the you know you're gonna be fresh out of college soon, so. Think of this when you're writing your code. Is it secure? Because if not, someone else is going to poke a hole in it, and then you might be liable for what what happened, or at least have to fix it. All right, uh, Chris, we our connection is degrading pretty consistently. We heard you, but just okay. just so you know, you might want to look and see if somebody started downloading a Netflix movie or something. Um, And we got one last story, and since we're talking about hacking this week, I'm going to jump right into a hacker one. Uh, We had talked a little bit about this in the past, uh, but some guys have now demonstrated uh, how to uh, uh, hack a a USB charger that breaks uh, an iPhone. Again, this was something we talked about before as being possible. Now it's actually been shown in in reality. Yeah, it was really cool because what they did was they used a beagle board, which is, you know, a little one of those tiny, small matchbox yep. computers. Totally Are you still there? Everything. Hold on a second. Hello. Hello. No. Wow. I lost Am I back? Calls at once there. Am I back now? Yeah, you're, you're good. Oh, and okay. me? Okay, so pick okay. up Seth with BeagleBoard. Okay, well, you know, the BeagleBoard is one of those Matchbox tiny computers, and what they did was create a charger um, for the iPhone that whenever you connect it to your iPhone, it basically takes control of your iPhone, and it does not need root access. So, for example, what they could do and what they, they use has an example, the Facebook app. So Facebook is a very common app, you know, basically one in six people on the planet have it um, or are in a member of Facebook. So you figure most everybody who has a smartphone is going to have that app installed and it kind of it deletes that app and puts another one on there that whenever you enter your credentials, boom, they got your credentials. Now you think, well, it's Facebook. It's no big deal. But they could do the same thing with your banking app or, you know, eBay or PayPal or something like that. And 
you know, and you think, and the thing about this is it's a third party charger. So how many people, you know, you get one charger with your iPhone, how many people have bought more? Or if you're at some type of public event and they provide chargers, I mean, here's a great attack vector for somebody is to lay these things out at like Starbucks or give them away or sell them on Craigslist or something for some cheap thing that's cheap because it took $125 for them to build this, um, I think is the number it said. But if they've compromised somebody's banking information, they can get a lot more money than that. So again, it and it wasn't, they didn't hack the phone. They just kind of hacked the interface to it and were able to put rogue apps on the phone. All right, so here's where my uh, devious mind went with this. Uh, I, you know, not frequently, but occasionally find myself self at airports. Um, and it's not uncommon at airports these days to have uh, USB charging ports built right in to the seats. So you sit down in a seat, you plug your phone in. Right. So I'm, uh, I'm a bad guy. I've got a four-hour layover at, uh, at the airport. It wouldn't be terribly difficult for me to insert my device in between the built-in USB charging stations and the actual uh, port there. Nobody's going to really pay much attention to me. Nobody pays attention to anybody at the airport. So now I have this thing there. Everybody who walks up and plugs into that port gets hacked, and I can sit back at my leisure and start collecting data. Yeah, and it, your data could come over the web, exactly. so you don't even have to be there anymore. You know, you're taking flights across the country, and instead of flying from New York to Los Angeles, you do like New York to Charlotte to Atlanta to Dallas to Denver to Los Angeles, and you seed each one of those airports with 10 or 20 of those chargers that you in place on a layover, and then boom, you've got tons of of compromised phones out there um you know people's chase account whatever that that you're getting you now have access to that you can turn around and sell those on the black market or you can raid their bank account i like the way you think mark yeah yeah i'm I'm actually not very proud of having just come up with that uh but yeah that that, if i've thought of it somebody else already has to that's that i'm not that smart so well, I'm um, sure of it. You know, it makes it makes you wonder. Um, you know, don't trust anything that you didn't buy from a reputable dealer, and and take your chargers with you. Um, I don't know that I could ever trust one of those USB things again. Now that I've read the story, right? So uh, you know, in the business of making people paranoid, just like we did. Uh, earlier today and so this show's not going to be any better we're going to talk about uh hacking and again i know that a lot of our audience is very technical and you're going to hear us say these things and you're going to say this is so simple this is not for you this is for the non-technical audience these are for your friends your family all right you have you told people yeah have you told your grandma the things that we're about to tell you have you done so in the way that we're about to or have you spouted big words because it made you feel good all right, so that's the thing here. We're going to use very few big words. We're going to keep it simple. This is Hacking 101 and Defense of Hacking 101. So okay. here we go. The lowest, uh, sophist- least sophisticated method of hacking known to man that's been around since before the digital age is the brute force. 
just like yep. uh, a uh, uh, bank robber in the 1800s on a train might walk up to a uh, a safe and start trying combinations, hoping he gets to gets there. That's brute force, just guessing every yep. possible combination. We got pretty good at that, you know, a couple of hundred years ago. We got pretty good at defending that in the analog world. Then we moved over to the digital world, and we kind of forgot everything we learned about making combination locks. And so the early days of technology, things were pretty easily brute forceable. Um, well, and some of them still are. So right. just... So, to, for example, I've got, let's say, I know that uh, every ATM password, uh, every ATM pin is four, four digits. That is a known fact. So, I could take somebody's card that I find in a lost wallet, walk up to an ATM, and start trying codes. That's only 9,999 possible comments. So, I started 0001, 0002, 0003, 0004, and I keep going. Eventually... I'm going to hit that code. And you don't even have to do that because they recently released what some of the most common ones were. And I think it was something like over 50% of the ones out there were the same comp, were the same thing. So, you know, one, two, three, four was one of the most popular. Zero, 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 zero was incredibly popular. And one, 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 one was incredibly popular if you just try those four you've probably done like 25 to 30 percent of everybody's pin codes nobody's gonna say you know six nine two zero because that's just a weird number no one would ever think of but you know one two three four or zero 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 is what everybody chooses so you've just made yourself success susceptible to brute force by choosing a password, because if you're going to be someone trying this, well, then you're going to study what the most common ones are, and you're going to go for the common ones before you try all of them. Yeah, and if you tried to get fancy with your PIN code, and you picked 1747, or 1474, because that's just straight down the left side and back up one, yeah, you don't. Or, you know, if you thought you could be fancy like that, you're 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 in trouble. So there are certain things that you can do software-wise. For example, um, I actually had this happen to me once. I was misentering uh, an ATM uh, code that I thought I knew, um, and and I didn't apparently. So I I entered it. And the machine said that's not it. And I entered it again. That's not it. I entered it again. That's not it. Spit the card back out at me. I put the card back in. I entered the same thing again because, you know, that's what you do. You keep doing the same thing over and over, uh, expecting different results. The fourth time, the machine took my card, and I never got it back. (laughs) So there are things that have been built into place to keep you from doing that. You're never going to get all 10,000 possible combinations. There are things that are going to stop you from doing that. But if you're on a website, if you're on a website and you have chosen a four-digit code for eBay, uh, well, eBay is a bad example because they're really good for Bob's fish and bait and tackle. And they happen to have an online site that they cobbled right. together out of existing things on a WordPress site. And they put an e-commerce site up there. They may not have uh, any anything there. And so I can write a script that goes from zero to nine, 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 nine in like an eighth of a second. And if there's if there's no code there that says after so many attempts, you get locked out. I'm done. Because we've gotten so good now at generating numbers that it's really easy to brute force things. Yeah. So, especially uh, four. Yes. 
So we've started moving. That's why we say, you know, a good password is like 11 or 14 characters. Um, and, and the more things you like, like I said there, there's, that was only four numbers. If you add some, some other digit other than number. So it's, it's three numbers and a letter. Well, now there's the zero through nine, but also I've got a through Z. I've got 26 new letters. I've just added in there, made it incredibly more difficult. Um, and then if I add an uppercase and a lowercase, now I've got to try A through Z uppercase and upper A through Z lowercase. Uh, so every time you add one bit of information, you make it twice as hard. Okay? So you start at two, and then it gets four, and then it's uh, uh, eight, and then it's 16. It grows exponentially every time. So uh, going from four bits to five makes it twice as hard. Going from four bits to eight makes it many, 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 many times harder. So longer exactly. passwords are better. More digits are better. Uh, so that's why you they say you should have a password that's eight characters long, uh, that has a non-alphanumeric character, and an uppercase, and a lowercase, and a number. Because you force somebody to go through all that. And, and we trust that most of the websites out there are going to stop you before you can try every possible combination. But even if they don't, even if they manage to do some sort of offline thing, like they, they take the ATM with them, and they're trying to hack into it, and it's disconnected from the system, and they're just using the local logic on the machine. If you've got a good, like, 14-character password, it can take trillions of years to brute force that stuff. Yep. So it's the lowest form of sophistication, um, which means it's the easiest to defeat. Just have more characters. That changes exactly. everything. Because every time you add a character, you make it twice as hard. So, which is why haystacking has become a good thing. Exactly. And give us a and which is why banks require four-digit passwords. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you have a bank that requires a four-digit password, find a new bank. If you have a bank that won't accept non-alphanumeric characters, find a new bank. I changed banks because of that. They're online. I, I tried to give them a good password, and it said your password can only contain contain numbers and letters. Nope. New bank. Sorry, not going to happen. Uh, so, yeah. Chris, give us a 30-second primer on haystacking again. We've talked about it before. Uh, well, haystacking is taking... Uh, it, it's kind of like w w what we talked about um, last week about uh, salt, where you have uh, a, a known phrase. So, like, you know, little teapot. I'm a little teapot could be your 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 salt. And then you have another piece, or your password, and then you have another piece, that's another known phrase that you put on it as well. So then you have two known phrases that you're putting together, but only one phrase stays the same on every site. So you could have, I'm a little teapot, and then the website address, and now you have a really long password that is extremely hard to break because, you know, it, password breaking in brute force is not like the show in the movies where they get one digit at a time. They have to guess every single letter at one spot. Otherwise, they don't get in. So if you have... I'm a little teapot, and then um, A is for Apple as your password. You know, the whole phrase, that's an extremely long password, and it's very difficult. So you could keep doing that, You could, have, but instead of I'm a little teapot being your salt, you could have, you know, one, two, what, you know, 15 ones, and then the name of the website, and another 15 ones. And you have a intensely difficult password because it's so long, and it's going to take immensely immense times to try and guess that many characters because they have to go through everything to get there 
So I'm going to tell you one that I have used in the past. I no longer use it, and now that I've put it out there, I will never use it again. But my salt, my haystacking that I did was, um, you keep using that word, period. I do not think it means what you think it means, period. So I started with that, and then I added a password. So it was, uh, so you know, if you're a Princess Bride fan, you know exactly where that came from. That is freaking long. All right. And I capitalized and I added periods. Uh, so it, it was really complex, but also super easy to remember. I could come up with that anytime I wanted to, you know, just yeah. and and in the hint thing on the website, I could just put in ego and, you know, and I would remember it, something like that. So anyway, moving right along, that's brute forcing. The next one is social engineering. Social engineering is getting somebody to give you the password or to skip the bypass the password altogether. Um, so yep. if your password is your dog's name, um, it's easy to figure that out. All I have to know is a little bit about you um, or uh, uh, one of your friends. Like I can, I can look you up on Facebook and see a post where you mentioned your dog. And now I'm trying to hack your something, um, your Facebook account, all right? And so I try your dog's name or I try your kid's name or I know your birth date. Uh, so those are social engineering, but it goes even farther than that. Uh, you could get somebody else, you know, and this has been happening. This happened offline all the time. Somebody will call up uh, masquerading as a friend of yours and say, hey, John uh, was going to uh, uh, give me the Susie's something. Number. Yeah, Susie's phone number. And I don't remember what it was. Uh, can you can you help me out? You know, there, there are things like that for. You know, stalkers have been doing this sort of stuff for years to try to get the to get people's addresses and phone numbers. It's the same thing, um, and it's always going to be some polite guy. It's not going to be some dark, scruffy man in a trench coat who walks up and says, "Hey, uh, just uh, wondering what your password might be." No, it's going to be some really friendly guy posing to be, uh, you know, somebody a wrong number even, um, and he's gonna he's gonna con you. The con stands for confidence. He's gonna gain your confidence and get your information. So a way to do this is to not have passwords that are easily guessable, not have passwords that anybody else knows. Keep them to yourself. One way that this will happen is like the quizzes that they're not as popular now as they used to be on Facebook. But, you know, I, I took one one time. It was like, you know, which NCIS character are you most like? And so it's like a 20 question quiz. Well, 10 of the questions are asking you questions about the NCIS characters. You know, do you like to program? Do you like to play on your computer? And, you know, if you say yes, well, then that's going to make you more like one. Are you somebody who likes the rugged outdoor stuff? But then the other 10 questions are, you know, what is your mother's maiden name? Where did you go to school? What is your dog's name? And, you know, and I recognize those for what they were. So I just, I made up just, you know, totally false answers for those. But somebody who doesn't know, oh, you know, I went, my mother's maiden name is whatever. And well, now they know the security code for your credit card company. And if they can, you know, so that's just one way that social engineering works. And what you just described is called phishing. I have, I know somebody who has the information. I'm trying to get the information. So those emails you might get, uh, is where somebody is going to send you an email saying your, uh, your PayPal account has been deactivated. Click here to reactivate it. And so you click it and you go to something that looks like PayPal, but it's really pay, PAI. 
uh, with a capital I that looks like an L, and you think you're at PayPal, but it's paypi.com, and it, the first thing it says is enter your username and password. Well, of course, I'm at PayPal. I have to do that. I enter my username and password. Bang. They've got me. That's called phishing. Yeah. And I get those in my spam box 50 times a day. They're incredibly common. Um, and so you, that's, that's just being vigilant. That's something we've said on this show before. Never click a link in email. You know, uh, Chris doesn't even click my links. If I send nope. him a link, he hand types it in, even though it's coming from a trusted source and it could be something we've talked about previously. He's going to hand type the URL. So I intentionally make the URLs really long when I send them to him just on purpose. I know you do, you <laughs> jerk. <laughs> but that's okay. And also, uh, you know, those phishing emails may not even have you click a link. They could say, you know, hey, look at this picture, which then installs malware into your computer yep. because you opened that email and clicked on the picture yeah. to Anna see Corva it. Anna Korvatikova naked. Click here to see. Uh, or open the zip, the zip file. Right. Or yeah. open the zip file. That that one's notorious. You know, open the zip file to see this picture. Well, the second you open the zip file, it executes the program that installs the malware, and then they scrape your computer for any personal data or anything that they could use to, you know, start social engineering you or your friends. Because you're not always the target of those phishing emails. It may be Johnny Smith down the road that you've known for 10 years who works for, you know, corporate CIA job here all right now here is the most insidious one that literally you cannot defend against but you just have to know it's out there you can get somebody else to bypass your password matt honan recently did that his, somebody yep. hacked his apple account by calling apple pretending to be matt and saying uh hey i forgot my password and they said, well, can you uh, give us the last five digits of the credit card you used to sign up for the account? No, I, I, I canceled that account. It was years ago. I don't even have it anymore. Um, can you give us your mother's maiden name? Uh, well, honestly, I just filled in some gibberish when I put that in there. I don't remember what I put. Uh, put it in there. Uh, okay, we'll just reset your password for you. That's literally what happened. Some yep. you know, and $7 an hour guy at Apple said, okay, I'll reset your password. Yeah, and the thing was on his, whenever they got it all taken care of, whenever he figured out what happened, like he used for a backup email to Apple, he used like his Google account. And then for his backup Google account, he used Apple. So, you know, a lot of times if you sign, if you go to Google or Yahoo or Hotmail or whatever, they want you to have a secondary email address. Don't create a circular reference on those. So, you know, if your Yahoo is your primary, don't use your Google as your secondary. And then on your Google has your primary, use that same Yahoo account has a secondary. Um, and, you know, and he, anyway, it was just, uh, really cool. And I had, I was going to talk about that one until I saw you had put it up there and security now, I believe it's episode 396 was where, um, they talked about that. Uh, or 364. So if you really want to go into that security now, episode 364 did a great job of explaining what happened to Matt Honan. Now I had an, a situation. I had just moved here to Georgia. I was transferring bank accounts, uh, and I needed to, uh, open, um, I wanted to go ahead and open a new account with bank of America here in Georgia because my mortgage was already with bank of America. 
Um, and I just thought it would be easier that way. So I, I called Bank of America and I wanted to open an account just over the phone. You know, can, can I do that? Uh, and I will come back later when I get my first paycheck and I will deposit it. And the guy was asking me security questions um, to, to verify I was the guy who owned the, the mortgage account. Right, because I was I was gonna have him link the two together because I got a special rate. I don't remember exactly what it was, uh, but I didn't have I didn't know that information. But he did it anyway because he asked me leading things like, um, "Have you owned a Jeep Cherokee in the last ten years?" Well, yes, I did, and they have records of that because I made payments to it. Yes. All right, that's a 50-50 question, right? Anybody could have called up in that particular situation. It was me, and the guy was helping me out. But he could he could have given that information to anyone because the questions he asked me to quote unquote confirm my identity were things anybody could have guessed. Um, right. And so that that's that was a national company, Bank of America. I'm calling you out. Um, the guy was just trying to be a stand up guy and, and do me a favor. And I appreciate that. And really what I should have done is just hung up the phone and said, I'm not even going to go down this road. But I did. I kept going because I was curious to see how it would end up. And it ended up, I got access to my own account without proving who I was. That should never happen. Yeah. Um, I could do and the same scary thing, about, thing. Yeah. I could do the same thing about Chris's account, right? I could call up and pretend to be Chris and answer the same questions, just taking guesses. Uh, and I happen to be an honest guy getting access to my own account, but what, what if I wasn't? So yeah. It, and those, the scary thing about that is you can't, you would never know it. You have no control over it. It's somebody else trying to be nice, yeah. and they do you in. Well, that's a. And I'll, I'll quote a movie on that point when, when you're talking about movies in this. There's a movie called um, Operation Takedown, which is a, a poor recommend, a poor reference to Kevin Mitnick's story. But at the beginning of the movie, he does just that basically and cons his way into uh, getting information that is for the telephone system only. So if you want to watch that movie, it's a great movie to watch because they show a really some impressive ways for social engineering and the whole thing about having someone else give away the passwords or the keys to the kingdom. Uh, it, it's perfect. It's exactly how this stuff happens. There's also other conferences like there's one in New York called the Hope Conference and they, I don't know if they still do it, but they do where they try to get call, they call a supermarket or a, a Kmart or a, a Walmart and trying to get access to the intercom system because it's an access code. So they'll try to call it and get the access code with just being on the phone. Yeah. No I, no 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 on-site people, no nothing, just calling them in and try and tricking their way into getting the access codes to the the intercom system. And they typically do it in like 30 seconds. Um the, I've seen this the, whole the, competition. Yeah. Yep. The fastest one I ever saw was 35 seconds. They had the access codes and were announcing stuff over the 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 PA. Now they didn't they didn't do anything destructive. It was just right. they announced stuff over the PA, and you could hear it over the phone. It was it was crazy. Um, those are two things to go look at if you're really interested in this. Uh, so social engineering is easy for some people and hard for other. It's the highly charismatic people that can take can take this under the wing and just run with it. All right, so moving on to the next one. And here's another one that you can do everything right and still get screwed on. All right, and that's password leakage. So I have my um, haystacking or salt, as Chris calls it. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Um, and then the name of the website. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, that website gets hacked. 
I didn't do anything. They they didn't do anything. Well, they did. They they had pure, poor security. The database gets out. Anybody perusing that database can pretty easily see what the pattern is there. And they can go to eBay and try to log in with, with my email address. And you keep using a word. I do not think it means what you think it means, eBay.com. And now I'm in. That's called leakage. That's where your password, because you use either the same password or the same algorithm. I, I know people like you might use Toby1775 as your standard password on everything. So if your Facebook account gets uh, compromised, Facebook lets something out. Now they have access to your bank account. They have access to your PayPal account. They have access to everything because you use Toby1776 on everything. And yeah. I'm totally guilty of that. Totally. Before I used LastPass, I had like three passwords and I just rotated through all of them. And you do too. Right. Don't admit, don't say that you don't because you do. And and again, it could be a really good, it might be a 17 character super hard password. But if you're using Not it at the same guy. place, you're using the same thing everywhere, uh, you can you can have leakage. So site X gets hacked uh, and it's the same password you use on site Y and Z. Now they have your passwords for site Y and Z because you use the same one. So right. don't do that. Have a unique password for every website. Again, you can salt it. You can do something cool like that to make it easier to remember. Or you can have some sort of algorithm like uh, take the first, fifth, and seventh letters of the website name and insert the numbers uh, 6, 12, and 37 in between them. You know, you can, you can come up with something that you can generate. Some algorithm that you can write down the website and using the same algorithm every time generate what appears to be a random uh, password. That's much yep. safer, but a really smart, really determined guy could probably sit down and figure out that algorithm too. He would need two or more sites to be linked, so the, the odds of it happening increase uh, the you know over time. You need two sites to get hacked. You need to use the same algorithm with both of them, and somebody has to be really interested in you. But if those things are true, if you're a governor, <laughs> then you probably don't want to do it that way. Right. And the, the easiest way to stop pass, password leakage is to use a, a, a system similar to like Mark just said with LastPass, where they generate a completely random gibberish password on every site. But then if you don't, if you ever lose control of your LastPass, you're just kind of stuck too. So it's one of those things you have to figure out where you're... Are you going to do all the remembering or are you going to have another site do it for you and you just hope that they never lose their access? Yeah. The time will come... When we look back on this whole password thing and think it's quaint that we used to use passwords, but we're not there <laughs> yet. We still need them. We haven't come up with anything better yet. And then the last one is something that you have only minimal control over, and that's vulnerability ex exploits. We talk about that a lot, unpatched sort of things. We talked about that with the, uh, the listener earlier who had uh, port 22 open. Uh, somebody can be looking for a known exploit uh, of, of a, uh, a system. And you can do everything right except b patch your software. So if you've got a little blinking update manager that you've been ignoring for the last six weeks, guilty, I do that, <laughs> uh, because you didn't want to reboot because it's a server and it takes 45 minutes to shut it down and another hour and a half to bring it back up. You know what I'm talking about out there, you server admins. So you ignore them as long as possible. You're leaving yourself open. So somebody can get in there and they don't need your password. They don't need anything. They can get, they can run some sort of 
exploit some sort of thing and uh, it's called a privilege escalation so you're running something as a non-privileged non-admin user um and then something gets in there you click on a link you download a particularly formed uh image or or pdf or something like that and it uses a known exploit to now turn that thing into an administrator without ever asking for your password well, now they, they're, they're in your box. They have admin privileges. You don't know it. They can be changing passwords and downloading things. So the thing there is 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 update your software. That's that's all there is to it. As soon as an update, and sometimes, you know, like I said, a company might have a, an exploit, a known exploit in the wild for 10 months and not fix it. There's not anything you can do about that. But update your software. So all these things that we've said, have a good password. We didn't say it, but... It should go without saying. Don't write the password down and put it under your keyboard. Um, uh, don't <laughs> or use a the same note password. On your computer. Don't use the same password everywhere and update your system. These are all things that we've said before, but we never really told you why. So that's the purpose of this. These are the reasons why we've made these recommendations over the past, and why you've uh, made those recommendations to other people. But maybe you didn't tell them why. Maybe they need to know why. Instead yeah. of, you know, why do I have to have this long password that's hard to remember? Well, let me tell you why. Let me break it down for you. There's a couple of ways things can, can happen. Chris just added into, into the show notes, Fire Sheep. This was a, a big <laughs> deal for a while back, uh, and I'll let him talk about that. Okay, Fire Sheep is, is something uh, where they impersonate you. Um, this can happen at the, I don't know if Starbucks is still uh, an, an open access point or if it's, if it's Wi-Fi encrypted again back up it or not but what'll happen is is they can um while you're connected to an unencrypted wi-fi they can copy your credentials your cookie basically and impersonate you on whatever sites you're on so this is a big deal for a while where everybody was using uh unencrypted wi-fi but now that everyone you know a lot of people are moving to encrypted wi-fi this isn't that big of a deal but it's still available um, I've seen it on, I've mm-hmm. you know, in the last couple of hotels I've been through, it was unencrypted Wi-Fi. And there was, me being me, wanting to push and see what I could get access to, I looked to see what FireSheep would see, and I saw 15 connections to Facebook, a couple of banks. Um, I didn't do anything with it, but it was, it was amazing to see that just by firing off a simple Firefox add-in, I could see all of this information. And I could have just clicked the button and took over their set and added myself into the session. So that's another thing that could happen that you don't have any control over, but just know that you need, if you're connecting to a free Wi-Fi access, make sure it's encrypted. You know, even in, even if the encryption is generic and, you know, the WEP stuff that is, you know, out of your control as well. Any encryption is better than no encryption when it comes to something like a, you know, session takeover. Yeah, and so uh, Google, Facebook, Twitter, uh, those are the ones I can think of off the top of my head. You can no longer connect to them without an HTTPS connection. They automatically take everything to HTTPS because of FireSheep. So yep. those couple of guys uh, who spent a few hours hacking together this this thing literally changed the, the internet world, and and we're glad they did. Um. And as Seth is pointing out in the notes, uh, the safest connection is always a wired connection because Wi-Fi bounces right through walls. 
Well, and this also just goes to also remind people that take the time when you have Wi-Fi and put a password on it. Um, and this has been several years ago now, but I visited a friend of mine in Louisville and he lived in an apartment complex and I had my computer out and I just asked him, you know, Hey, what's your password? Well, he didn't want to tell me he wanted to come typing in. So I got tired of waiting for him. I just looked and saw the other networks around. And there were several unencrypted networks for me to choose from. I just picked one and got on and started surfing away. And I had him going for a little bit because he thought I hacked his password. And I didn't have to hack his password. I just used someone else. So if you have a wireless router, put some security on it. You know, even, you know, don't do one, two, three or something like that. But put some security on it because otherwise you're just inviting someone into your network and you're inviting someone to rule your computer. And I've done that. Sure. You're, you're, we're trolling around. You need a, an access point and there's not one, but the neighbor has one. Of course. Right. Now, if you're a devious person, you now go about setting up unencrypted things just so you can hack people. So it's just right. as dangerous on both sides. Uh, but anyway, all of this comes down to common sense. Don't be stupid. Yeah. Rule number one, don't be stupid. <laughs> um, Rule I'll number bring two, up you th- are stupid. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bring up a point, too, that a lot of people don't forget, that don't even think about it. Uh, physical action or physical access to a computer of any form, phone, computer, tablet, laptop, trumps everything. Uh, it doesn't matter how good your, your, your passwords are, if you loan your tablet to somebody or your phone or anything else for them to physically touch or they you know swipe your laptop away from you when you're at the at the grocery store or out of your car or at the airport someone you know walk by and just accidentally walks off with your laptop uh that trumps everything because now they are you they have just physically taken over as you in front of that keyboard yeah when you're at work before you walk away from desktop hit windows key L. Just do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's amazing how many people I, I see not doing that. And I work around sensitive information. Um, and somebody will just get up and walk away from the computer, logged in, up, and ready to go. All you got to do is sit down and go to work. Uh, don't do that. Yeah, don't be stupid. That, that's Especially in a hospital place, that's scary thought there. That's HIPAA and everything else violations just waiting to happen. Yep. And and by the way, when I say I see people doing it, I mean I come back to my desk and saw that I forgot to log out. That's that's what I really mean. <laughs> I went to the uh-huh. bathroom, I came back, I had forgotten to lock it. Oops. So uh just telling on myself again. You know, and they there there are applications out there that if you tie it to your phone, um I know like the the Linux has a one called Blue I think it's Blue Proximity or something like that. Where if your phone leaves proximity of your computer, it automatically locks the computer up. You know, if if it's that big of a deal, invest in something like that. Yeah. You know, the one for Linux is free, um, and it it, it works. It, it's still a little glitchy, but it does work. I have my Bluetooth headset tied to my lap, my Linux machines at work. The second I walk farther out, move away from Bluetooth range, my machines lock. So. And, and I'm sure we will hear from the uh, the security professionals out there, the zealots, 
uh, that said we didn't go too far, that's fine. We like to hear from you. Bring it on. If you have more questions, bring those on too. You can do all of that at elementop.com. Uh, you can leave feedback. You can leave a voicemail. You can interact in the forums. You can tell us about your favorite bad movies. Um, you can upload a picture of bacon. You can do all those things over at elementop.com. And now on to our command line tips of the week. And Chris, I think you're cheating. This one isn't really a command line. It's not, but you can launch it from the command line. So technically, I'm okay with this one. But uh, it's Wireshark. And I know, yes, yes, it's a GUI application. But with the topic of the discussion, to the this is... <laughs> this is one of those ta- this is one of those commands that everybody needs to know about. You know, especially in your home network. Launch Wireshark one night just to see what it can sniff out and you'll be amazed on the stuff that it goes that goes from one machine to the internet unencrypted just willy-nilly and you will start looking at sites in a whole new a whole new light. Uh, it does take a little bit to get used to, but Wireshark will show you things that you didn't even know existed on traffic. And it's gotten so much better over the years. It'll, it'll oh, yeah. list uh, a, a list of these are all the connections. And you say, oh, there's one to gmail.com. What is that? And you click it, and you can read the email you just sent because it, it reassembles that message. Yes. Yeah. That really happens. <laughs> it's scary. It's so scary. Take a look at it. And yes, I know I'm cheating this week, but this command line tip, this tip period is something that will open your eyes on security and it will make you wonder how people don't get hacked more often, especially in big corporate environments. All right. And Seth, we need some levity. Lighten the mood for us. Okay. I took the opposite direction of Chris. He wanted to tell you how to better protect yourself. If you want to remain blissfully ignorant of all the dangers on the internet, then please, please, please join me in going through the Virtual Toilet Paper Museum Art Gallery. <laughs> it's That's funny. Pictures of toilet paper art. <laughs> okay. So here's my favorite one. It's Da Vinci's God and Man, where where God reaches down with a thin, with a finger and breathes the the life uh, force into man. Only in this one, he's handing him a roll of toilet paper. Awesome. I don't know. And I like the little smiley go, that says "Man in Toilet." You can go through the temp- contemporary collection. There's a lot of them. Go back to the museum entrance and click out all the different exhibits they have in the Virtual Toilet Paper Museum, established 1999 <laughs> AD. Wow. Oh, come okay. on. I mean, so uh, guys, we uh, have some command line gurus in the, in the uh, uh, chat room saying T shark is the command line version of wire shark. So there you go. Right. You can, you can still be a command line godfather and sniff your data, but don't sniff the toilet paper. That's, that's yeah. entirely different. <laughs> friends don't let friends sniff their data. So. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, that's it. I already told you how you can get in contact with us. Please do that. Uh, also, 559-AMOP is our phone number if you want to leave us a voicemail. It's been a while since we had one of those. Um, and while we were doing the show, I got a little listener feedback. Uh, I'll read it in full uh, in next week's show, but I wanted to give a highlight of it because I thought it was funny. It said, several times over the last few episodes, I've heard you mention the podcast going too long. Um, uh and he says, where'd he goes? Uh, 
I look at, uh, uh, do these same people complain if they order a small pizza and a, the pizza place delivers a large? Do they demand a refund? So that's a that's a preview <laughs> of some email to come next week. I thought that was great. Awesome. Um, the show is long this week, an hour and 45 minutes probably before it's all said and done. Uh, so you just got, you got an extra medium pizza uh, instead of a small. So uh, thanks for being with us. This was a, a, a an interesting show. And believe me, guys, if you think the show was long, we cut out easily 45 minutes of material from the notes. The, the trouble easily. is the trouble is these two guys here with me are so prolific that each of them brings an hour and a half of content every week. <laughs> and so and then I bring my hour of yammering about stuff and, and you got a seven hour podcast and we start cutting things. It's it's like hacking our way through the wilds of the Amazon here. I've got a big note cutting machete that I wield heavily and we still end up with with almost two hour shows. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's going to happen. It's going to happen probably before the end of the year. We're going to hit two hours. Uh, so just buckle up. It's going to happen. <laughs> we hope you like and it. Enjoy. Uh, and, uh, you know, for those of you who've been listening, like uh, uh, Ryan said, he, he listened to 60 episodes. You know, the episodes are getting longer. So that commitment is more and more as time goes on. You know, 60 episodes used to just be, you know, 50 hours. Now it's 180 hours. <laughs> Uh, but we love doing it that's the thing we love being here so much that we just don't want to say goodnight so uh, we hope you like it too and we look forward to seeing you next week but for now that ends this episode of Everyday Morning